I'm Eric Taros. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Craig Bartok. I'm Alan Cozen. Beatles, naked.
It is indeed all too much. So you kicked off George and Ringo's White Album, which a lot of our listeners think is just going to be an EP. We're going to prove them wrong. Oh, hell no. This is a 14-track album, everybody. So you're basically kicking it off with It's All Too Much. Tell us the thinking behind that. I I thought about it long and hard, uh, a long, long, long time, no pun intended. Those two songs, It's Only Northern Song and It's All Too Much, were released as part of the Yellow Submarine Project which is 68-ish, 69-ish, even though they were recorded in 67. uh, When I looked at this, I thought we praised John Lennon up and down about the variety of his textures and songwriting for his White Album, and we kind of blew... 
I kind of blew past thinking, oh yeah, John was the only one this great variety at that time period. You know, Paul's stuff was kind of samey. Not sure I agree with you about that. I think Paul's White Album was extremely eclectic. Uh, well, I, I don't know why it struck me as being, I guess the personality of Paul to me overrides a lot of his music. So it's, it is him being, I mean, he's, he's a genius, don't get me wrong. I just find it, oh, it's, he's sort of like an actor that you go to see because it's that famous actor. It's a Charlton Heston film, you know? He might be playing Moses, but you're always aware that it's Charlton Heston. For me, with Paul McCartney, I'm always aware it's Paul McCartney. I'm very rarely surprised that, oh, that's Paul McCartney. So I guess that's my way of looking at that sort of thing. Getting back to this particular White Album, I see that uh, if you take songs from around the period, you can make a great case for, for George's variety as well. So that's why I started with It's All Too Much, because I felt it's a great message. It is all too much. Uh, everything that is all too much for them to take as they were going through that period from 67, 68, 69. Yeah, I think, I think it's a fantastic production, that song. Uh, a terrific closer to the Yellow Submarine cartoon. Uh, real late 60s psychedelia. I think it's a kind of underrated song. You know, it's not one that people often refer to amongst George's hits, but I, I love that track. I love it because it's one that I kind of blew past as a younger person and then sort of rediscovered and was like, wow. I mean, I love, you, we've talked to uh, guys about, a, Craig may be more conscious of this than the rest of us, the importance of a great opening, catchy something. I just love how It's All Too Much begins with that, whatever the hell Lennon or somebody is saying, yeah, whatever. Uh, I just, and that, that just, like you say, it's, it just reeks of psychedelia, but psychedelia was still going on in 68, so I think we can get away with it. Well, for me, it's one of those songs that, since it's droning in a G chord, uh, you, know, you have to be careful about not overstaying your welcome. It's a, it's a fun song, and I like it in context with um, the Yellow Submarine um, project, but I don't think it would have been good enough for the White Album. And it's like Lennon proved with uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, if you're going to stick with a one-chord song, it better be interesting enough for it to carry. And I think All Too Much does. Um, it's just to the point where it starts to overstay its welcome for me. Um, but it's got enough interesting bits going on with that little trumpet solo, the multi-track thing, and then the organ intro with the d d guitar and all that. And it's it's a great melody. Um, and they, they obviously put a lot of time into it. And um, yeah, it's it's one of those songs that I've never really, really loved or never really hated, but it's, um, it's interesting. It's definitely not his best work, but definitely not his worst work. So when we cut this, when we master this album up, Craig, you don't want to use the like the extended version with the extra verse, the was it eight minutes and twenty five version that popped up thirty years ago. I really like All Too Much, and I, I would definitely use the long version um, just because it's a little bit different than what people know, um, and it does have that extra verse. Uh, I think that 
while musically it may be a bit monotonous at, at its root, as, as Craig points out, I think that there is so much going on in the track, which in a way it, it is... I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of saying it's unusual for the Beatles, but of course, it's it's not unusual to have a lot of stuff going on in the track. But it's, I think, unusual to have a lot of stuff that's as aggressive as is going on in "It's All Too Much" for as long as it's going on. It it just seems sort of like an explosion of you know celebratory energy in a way, um, and I think that that probably is what makes it a good opening album track on the Eric version, and I'm sort of leaning towards it being on mine too, since we're taking this expansive view. Um, you know, you got that feedback. It's a little bit different than the John Lennon feedback on I Feel Fine. It seems to be more more deliberate Hendrixy feedback in a way. And, you know, it's got that sort of you know, typical... Harrison Witt uh, in the lyrics, and um, I, I, I kind of like it. I, the, the fact that it's basically one chord never really bothered me. I, I, I think I kind of uh, liked the, the feeling that it created overall. Well, it never bothered me with the one chord because I only know three, so it's like <laughs> one third of my musical uh, ability. I, I, the, other, the other thing that's I find interesting as an opener for it, and then I will move on from that, I guess. It's just the idea that I think it sets a nice tone for why the Beatles went to India. Uh, it was all too much. Uh, as great as it was, the energy is positive, but there is something slightly menacing, especially the longer that song goes on. It is the two-edged sword of success at its crescendo for me, and, and it, to me it sets that table of, of the as we go through this track listing of, of this White Album. Uh, George is so fascinating because he is... He is both sides of the coin at the same time. He is a dichotomy, and we'll get into some of those. Uh, Yin and Yang out, George. He certainly is. Craig, echoing the question that I asked you for the John and Paul White Album episodes, in, in the case of both George and Ringo, how do you see their evolution up to this point as musicians? When we get to the White Album in 68, how have they evolved? Well, Ringo is... As, as a musician on the White Album, he's on fire. I mean, he's, his drumming is spectacular. And, um, and George is, I think I made a comment earlier on one of the other podcasts that I felt like the White Album was probably the last album where they, as musicians, as they really dialed in the sounds, they kind of, when they got to Abbey Road and Let It Be, and they kind of sort of... Uh, didn't really spend as much time just with every sound, but I mean, George's guitar tones um, and his playing are really, really great on the White Album. They, they're, they're, they're really at their peak, I would say. With Ringo, obviously, we haven't got that many compositions of Ringo's on this album, but um, it, when you talk about his musicianship, on the entire White Album, what are the standout moments for you in terms of his drumming? Oh, boy, I, was, I just went back and I listened to the... Uh, these Harrison songs again, like through headphones, and just there's a isolated um, drum track of "Why My Guitar Gently Weeps" while we're going on to that right now, and and his drumming is really really great on that that alone. I mean he he's so good at holding back, and then just the you know a drummer nowadays would just 
always put the hi-hat in with on the four or the eighth notes. Ringo holds it back and it's just like, he'll just do like a kick and a snare and he'll just save that hi-hat for a special moment. And then he'll go to like eighth notes or 16th notes, like in a certain part in a song. Then he won't, um, then he'll actually pull it back out again. And that is unheard of nowadays. The first thing you'd want a drummer would want to do is naturally just give you a beat, like a a four four beat. And and Ringo was so good at that. And he's really, it, it, like, and we get into songs like Long Long Long. His drum drumming is explosive in that. It's even more explosive than I would say a day in the life. The sound of his drums are incredible. And that's kind of fearless to be put that type of um, those type of tom fills in a ballad. It's really spectacular. Yeah, well, as I say, it leads well into our second song, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I look at you and see the lover that's sleeping While my guitar gently weeps Unfold your love 
of guitars weeping these days i don't know about you guys but there's something about this track that still stirs me today i remember being outraged as a kid reading the roy carr tony tyler book where they said well it doesn't quite get to that moment are they right kidding? that's right it doesn't quite make greatness <laughs> yeah i'm like I, I, yeah. what planet are you coming from <laughs> i to yeah. me it's probably i mean right after what his greater glories to come, you know, something, and here comes the sun. I mean, it's it's certainly emotional and fantastic, and it just indicates to me it's one of the best songs on the on the overall White Album. What do you guys think? I think so too. Absolutely. Yep. Me too. I I think in fact it's one of the best songs the Beatles did in a way. I mean, it's uh, when I do uh, back in the days of mixtapes when I would put together a compilation to just walk around, you know, with using you know headphones. It was always on there. George tells a great story about how he came up with that line about "While my guitar gently weeps." Um, well, I'm I'm looking in in his book right now, <laughs> I Me Mine, where he discusses uh, all of these songs and includes the original handwritten lyrics and, you know, with cross outs and everything. Yeah. Um, and he talks about how he had been reading the I Ching and uh, what he decided to do based on, you know, his reading of the I Ching was that he would write a song based on the first thing he saw. That, that, thank you. That's and he it. went to his mother's house and saw the gently weeps thing and, uh, and built a song around it. Um, on the handwritten lyric sheet, interestingly, uh, it originally was a little more British. <laughs> it was called 
whilst my guitar gently weeps. <laughs> there you go. That's much more correct. <laughs> you know what I love about George, though? He, he will bow to commercialism. He knows <laughs> what side of the bread the butter is on, which I would love if George could be reanimated. George, please write a song called The Side the Bread of the, but- the Butter is On or something to that effect. Uh, but we're going to talk about the I Ching <laughs> in a couple of more songs. So thank you, uh, my vice sultan of Segway, for that uh, reference. <laughs> I first heard the acoustic version, you know, like take one, call it the demo maybe, back in, what would it have been, in the 80s at Abbey Road when they opened up the studio. Oh, summer of 83, They were going to refurbish the studio so it would never look the same again. And uh, this came over the speakers and everyone was just blown away in that room. Uh, I, I think it, the acoustic version stands up in its own right. It, I, I love it every bit as much as the electric version. Oh, I do as well, but that's that's the the final track actually for me is that's the that's the uh, Her Majesty bonus track at the end. So that's why I was saving the uh, the bit to talk about that at that point. Well, you know, the production of this song is really spectacular, and I mean, we we can't let this song go by without talking a little bit about Eric Clapton and and his the sound of the guitar, and the fact that you know that he, George bringing him in really. It had a lot to do with the success of the song because they really weren't taking it too seriously until Clapton came in. And um, you got Paul's bass sound, which is quite aggressive, and Paul's playing um, chords on his bass in the verses, which is, I think he's only done it a few times. He did it in for the benefit of Mr. Kite and uh, the, the B section or the bridge and I Want to Hold Your Hand. But he's actively strumming his bass guitar, which not many people can get away with doing. As I said earlier, Ringo's doing the really, really withholding the drums at the right places, but um, the the, the crazy flanging that's going on on the White Album is really prevalent on this particular song. It's on the organ, yeah. and it's on Eric Clapton's guitar. And it's like it, it, they stretch the flanging almost to the point where it's really out of tune. And they use it a lot. They use it a lot on this, this, this album, and they kind of got it moved, moved on to something else after the White Album because they pretty much... Um, it got to be a little too gimmicky, but... It works beautifully in the glue that ties this song together in the instruments. Yeah, because in fact, um, I think it was George told Ken Scott and Chris Thomas that he wanted it, you know, wanted Eric's guitar to have more of a Beatleish sound to it. So that's when they that's, added the flanging. That's correct. I, be, I believe that Clapton is using a Fender Vibratone Leslie. He's playing through a Leslie on the slow speed. Um, and the Fender Vibratone is more of an amplifier as opposed to the... Um, like the wooden Leslie speaker that the B3s go through. Yeah. Um, and um, and then I believe the guitar, to me, it sounds like it's going through that vibratone, and then it's also being flanged on top of that. So it's being thrown into the mix with the organ and some of the background vocals to get that um, out-of-body type of uh, sound, and it just works perfectly for this. Because we should point out for listeners who don't know that George had originally attempted to be, you know, to do the lead 
on this track and he tried wah-wah, he tried some backwards guitar, none of it was working. And so it was one morning in the back of a car with Eric where he sort of said, why don't you play on the record? You know, the others aren't showing much interest in the track right now. And he was saying, well, but it's Beatles, you know, how can I be part of it? And George said, no, this is my song, you can play on it. And I think that was a great decision. And a power decision too, uh, an empowerment moment for George to say, well, if you're not going to take my stuff seriously, I do. He was finally at that moment where if, uh, which I think was really an important moment for the Beatles as well, because he props up Abbey Road, you know, in the coming months as far as I'm concerned. Uh, But anyway, yeah, I mean, a, a fantastic moment, one of the greatest things George ever did. And as you said, Richard, great decision making which is a hallmark of the young Beatles all through their career. Uh, whoever made better decisions and self-editing decisions like the Beatles did, certainly no one I've ever followed or knew anything about. Well, including the fact that he edited the lyrics for the final version, right? You know, when we listen to the Isha demo or we listen to the acoustic version, they've res- each of them have got different lyrics to what ends up in the final song. Yeah, and the the gentler lyrics seem to work better for that acoustic version that we both heard at Abbey Road in '83. Yeah, he did a lot of editing, and um, if if anyone doesn't have this "I Me Mine" book, um, it's just been reissued with you know, in an expanded version. It's definitely look worth looking at. Um, I mean, he has one verse that that originally was, "I look at the trouble and hate that is raging while my guitar gently weeps while I'm sitting here doing nothing but aging." Beautiful. I guess he thought the beginning of that was a little too aggressive. So on by the time of, I think, the Esher demo, or certainly the acoustic one, he changes it to, I, I watch from the wings at the play we are staging while I'm doing here, while I'm sitting here doing nothing but aging. And, and that's actually, I think, a lot more artful. And yet it didn't get on to the finished version, which is sort of a pity. And why Eric has to have it is the... <laughs> yes, that's why I have to have it. It's not just me, by the way. This track listing, I will tell you right now, for those of you who believe in the paranormal, George had a hand in this. Mm, I see. Ouija board or the I Ching? Tap it on the table in postcards. (laughs) Okay. While My Guitar Gently Weeps was the first eight-track recording by the Beatles. When George spied the eight-track machine in, in the hallway, this was while George Martin was away, and he managed to get someone to hijack the machine, and they used it on this track, and George Martin was none too happy when he found out when he got back. He basically <laughs> gave the, the, the engineer who uh, had loaned it a, a bit of a bollocking. Well, you know, that's why you don't go away, John. <laughs> I mean, stay on the job, don't go away on vacation halfway through. That's exactly what you deserve, is the inmates will run the asylum, and they should. Why was he upset? Yeah, I was going to say, why would he be upset? I think it would make George Martin's job quite a bit easier to have the extra tracks. I, I think it was simply a case of this was done without his permission. He was away, and it should have gone through him. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a control. The most important word in the English language, ladies and gentlemen, and in any language, is control. Yes, but it saved him having to go to EMI and say, I want to use the 8-track. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It saved him a bureaucratic hassle. Yeah, you, but you, you know, it, 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 it usurped him. I, I can see that especially, um, you know, Richard could speak better to this, but I'm sure in 60s British culture, that was a no, you know, that's a that's a very American thing. Yeah, it's lying around, let's grab it and do it, you know, and uh, I don't think that's how it... It's just not on. 
19- well, especially the EMI studios of that era, right? Where they're all, you know, the engineers are in their white coats and uh, you can only push the EQ so far. You know, things mustn't, needles mustn't go into the red. Obviously, the Beatles were breaking down all those barriers, but this was part of that. Well, I think it's time after something as heavy as While My Guitar Gently Weeps, it's Ringo time. I think we've got something there, George. I listen for your footsteps coming up the drive. Listen for your footsteps, but they don't arrive. On the mantel shelf See the hands are moving But I'm by myself I wonder where you are tonight Why I'm by myself I don't see you Does it mean you don't love me anymore? Don't pass me by Don't make me cry Don't make me blue So unfair You were in a car crash And you lost your hair You said that you would be late About an hour or two That's alright, I'm waiting here Just waiting to hear from you Don't pass me by, don't make me cry Don't make me blue Cause you know, darling Pass me by, I don't need to make me cry. 
possibly knew how to play three chords on a piano, and so I decided to write a song around them. If anyone who listens plays piano, they'll, they'll notice that it's just uh, like a little 12 bar in C. I can play anything in C as long as it's a 12 bar, but I have to learn a few more chords and then write something else. Ringo has always been very country and western influenced. I'm just a hillbilly at heart. The first reference to Don't Pass Me By I can think of is in 64, where they're teasing him. Ringo, how about your songwriting? How's that coming on? Oh, yes, I, I've written a good one, you see, but yes. no one seems to want to record it. No. Oh, Paul may record the... it on a... No. no. Yes, Paul, you no, promised. Ringo... Okay. Oh, no, oh, the oh, thing Paul. is, I was doing the tune for you to sing it. No, I don't want to sing you. Sing don't that pass me the... by. Oh, you do. Rhythm and blues great... song. Oh, yeah, maybe. don't pass me by. Don't make me cry. Don't make me blue, baby. Because <laughs> you know why? Oh, I got the ice cream for you. Yeah, well, it's a sensation. all those words? Yeah, blues and all that. He's the Dylan Thomas of Liverpool, isn't he? Was it worth the four-year gestation period? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, that pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Not one of my favourite tracks, I have to be honest. It's Beatles. You know, I love Beatles, but I've got to say, I'm not a fan of all that country violin. I'm not particularly in admiration of some of the lyrics in this song. I mean, that's just my take. Well, on to it. me, it was comedy relief. Uh, you, you were in a car crash and you lost your hair. Is that? Oh what God, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just ridiculous. I mean, was that meant to be just stupid, or did he think it was funny? George was uh, fascinated with Ringo's lyrics because he thought that Ringo was being cosmic without knowing about it. So I would put that little reference to alopecia. Uh, as uh, as being Ringo being cosmic without you know someday everyone will understand that when the New England Journal of Medicine has a has some study where you know people in certain car crashes lose all of their hair you know and and then we'll all know the genius that truly is Ringo. But did George actually back up that statement as to why it was cosmic? Yeah, he talked about Octopus's Garden and that he found that that was an incredibly cosmic song. I see. I think it was something else entirely. I think that Ringo, having watched John and Paul um, fix bits of each other's songs all this time, figured, okay, I'm going to write, you were in a car crash and you lost your hair, and John is going to come up with a better line for me, and it just (laughs) didn't happen. John probably thought that was the best line in the song. (laughs) (laughs) Up there with the movement you need is on your shoulder. Exactly. Well, Craig, I'm not going to ask you how Ringo had evolved as a songwriter up to this point, but... Uh... Yeah, that's a, that's kind of a non-question there. <laughs> um, but in, only on the White Album could this song appear, and I think it's, it kind of bears out our comments, but I, I don't believe that uh, George and John had anything to do with this song. I believe it was Ringo and Paul that played, um, played everything on it. And um, is that... Correct. Is that what your notes uh, tell you, Richard? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of says it all. It's like you only have two Beatles, and you can't get anybody else to uh, to work on it. You know, it's one. Of, it's 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 there. It's the White Album, and it it goes by and in passing when you're. It's in 1968 when it's the Beatles. It's like everything is good. I suppose that is the beauty of the White Album, isn't it? The, right. the eclecticism of the White Album means anything you've got doesn't have to fit in with any particular genre. Just throw it into the pot. Yeah, and we all know that there's going to be a Ringo song, and and none of them can be quite as good as um, with a little help from my friends or some of those other ones. Well, which he didn't uh, write. But, exactly, exactly. But, I mean, a Ringo singing song. And... Um, yeah, it's. You know, it was nice of them to give a nod to Ringo, and 
and he did a little bit better on Abbey here Road. on this on, on my compilation here of of George and Ringo's album. It's there because, as you say, it's he it has to be. It was on the White Album. It provides comedy relief. If I had my druthers, I'd trade this for Barry Wom doing "Living in Hope." I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> oh yeah, it's just right. a better song. I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, I think we, we have to acknowledge that Ringo was a country music fan, and so yeah. his it's not surprising that his first song would be a more or less country song. I, mean, I think he actually does a much nicer version of it on his last album, the one that came out last year. Um, I don't know if any of you bothered listening to <laughs> to that album, um, but he did a few remakes on it, uh, including Back Off Boogaloo and this. Doubted you, I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. You said that you'd be late tonight, about an hour or two. I said, That's all right, I'm waiting here, waiting to hear from you. Don't pass me by, don't make me cry, don't make me blue. Cause you know, darling, I love only you You'll never know it hurt me so How I hate to see you go, don't pass me by decent country song instead of a comedy country song so yeah it's still not exactly gonna top your list of greatest songs ever written but uh but it it, it may be better than it sounds here but you know while we're in this comedy mode i think it's time for yet another sort of i mean i hate to use the word throwaway but certainly a uh, a lighter weight uh, moment on george and ringo's white album would be savoy truffle Cream tangerine, Montelimon A ginger sling with a pineapple heart Coffee dessert, yes you know it's good news But you have to have them all put out after the Savoy Truffle
it now When the pain cuts through You're gonna know one how The sweat is gonna fill your head When it becomes too much You shout aloud guys i'm digging that brass sound i still love 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 it i love this track i mean i, I always have um the the brass sound is great on it and um and other, i mean the lyrics yeah they're they're we all know what they're based on and they that that clapton had the sweet tooth and the the good news um macintosh good news chocolates um but it's a really good sounding track and um it's got a very good guitar solo on it, and um, it's it's got a lot of snap to it. I I've, I really love the song. Yeah, I agree with you, Craig. That that is a really electrifying solo that he plays on there. Yes, and it's very interesting too because he does the, you know, the the song stops and um, for the first line of every verse, and what he George does is he he plays his guitar over the melody to kind of reinforce it I don't know whether that's one of those things where he was a little self-conscious because it's stopping because he only plays that one riff and then the guitar disappears and um kind kind of an interesting little production do, do you there. detect a, a different production sensibility between the John tracks the Paul tracks the George tracks on the white album do you hear them interjecting as producers not so much by musician as much as more, more it is by the song i think the song dictates that in particular um but now once again now savoy truffle i don't believe there's any lennon on this song at all i don't right. i don't believe he had anything to do with this so he probably just didn't feel like he had the time for it if you go through george's beatle contributions through the late 60s John is less and less appearing on George's tracks. For whatever reason, he's not around. Well, probably not from a technical guitarist standpoint. That might have been, you know, maybe what George needed wasn't really in John's style. When I said lightweight, by the way, I was talking about the lyrics, though there, it, everyone understands the, the chocolate uh, reference. There is one that seems to escape people. You're aware of the, the Tiny Tim reference in here, right? You know that what you eat, you are. 
That is a, a corruption of, of a movie that was uh, starring Tiny Tim called You Are What You Eat, which was uh, Barry Feinstein's production. One of the really cool things about that um, movie was that uh, Tiny Tim's live music concert scenes were shot by Barry Feinstein with the permission of the Beatles down on the field of Candlestick Park at their very last concert. So there's beautiful color 16-millimeter footage. They only used a few minutes of it in uh, You Are What You Eat. But uh, there's 20, 25 minutes of outtakes, including a little bit shot of the stage. Of course, there's also the digger, Oh Bloody, Oh Blood Up. Yeah, but can you tell me where you are? Yeah, it, it's so funny how the White Album does that, where it references other songs, sometimes even on the same album. A slight editorial footnote, however. Um, according to I, Me, Mine, the... We all know what you eat, you are section was actually contributed by Derek Taylor. Uh-huh. Well, he was part of all that bit. I think things were just sort of floating in the air, you know? I think that was just part of it. And um, it's, uh, anyway, that, but when I said lightweight, well, I didn't know, it mean was the, it was 1968, so, you know, we're all watching Laugh-In on TV, and there's, you know, everyone's wearing buttons with little slogans on them, and you are what you eat was one of those, you know? It was, it was, was pretty common uh, um, among the things that people were saying and wearing and, and quoting. What do you think of the song, Alan? Do you like it? Um, you know, I really do. Uh, apparently, in my um, From the Cavern to the Rooftop book, I said that it was a throwaway. I don't remember saying that, but someone actually walked up to me at a <laughs> classical music concert a few weeks ago and said, you know, I, I disagree with you about Savoy Truffle. And I said, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> um uh, musically, I, I, I love the, the brass arrangement. Um, I, I agree with Craig about the guitar playing, and you know, just it, it has a great sound, like a lot of these Harrison songs do. And, and, and they are all different, but they all have incredible textures. And uh, and the, if I said it was a throwaway, I probably was referring to the lyrics and Eric Clapton's "Sweet Tooth" and and all of that. It it you know when you have something that is so specific and basically an in joke, those songs often you know don't survive because not everybody in all time will understand what the in joke was. You know we do because we're fanatical, but. Other people, you know, to, to, to normal people listening to this song, it may be a little puzzling, you know. Well, it actually may sound trite, right? Mentioning the different types of chocolates. If people just take it on that level, mm-hmm. they they are going to see it as a. Alan, uh, while right. we're on the subject, I I thoroughly agree with that guy that came up to you because I've I've had a bone to pick with you since 1982. Your review of Mahler's Fourth <laughs> Symphony, so overrated. Sorry, you know. Oh man! Well, you know it'll you'll catch Mahler's time will come for you, Eric. <laughs> well, I mean, Mahler, you know Mahler in in his in his lifetime was was uh, didn't have the appreciation that he felt he should have, and he said, "My time will come." So I'm simply passing on his words to you. Uh, and he had an unusual relationship with women, which leads into our next track, "Piggies." <laughs> Dirt to fly around in 
chastised with all her backing They don't care what goes on to guide you. years ago it just seems funny that it's come out now once again displaying the most fascinating thing about george harrison to me you know the same guy that was so selfless so spiritual yet wrote taxman uh here's somebody who really was giving his existence over to spirituality and yet comes up with this perhaps the harshest condemnation of humanity in any beatles song am i right or wrong it's certainly up there, isn't it? I've always loved Piggies. I, I, I think it's terrific. I know some people; it's not their favourite track. I, I think it's a, a beautiful song. I love the, you know, the George sarcasm all the way through it. I, I like the arrangement. I like the vocals. Great track. Yeah, I, I think it once again as a beautiful, weird piece of music, and the harpsichord is fantastic in it. Um, yeah, I just it something about it. I think Manson ruined it for me. I don't know. Um, just the idea that he was so fixated on this 
in a way that, say, it didn't ruin Helter Skelter for me. There's just there's just something about piggies that rubs me the wrong way. You might have seen piggies done at Albert Hall, Richard, correct? You mean back in 92? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, that, that was a moment. I was lucky enough to see George in uh, December of 91 in Tokyo, and I remember he, he put back in some of the missing lyrics that, Alan, you probably saw in the I Me Mine book. You know, the whole thing about the pig brother and all that stuff. Yeah, and also he points out in here that um, the line, what they need's a damn good whacking, his mother contributed. That's, I remember that, yes. <laughs> he needed something to go with in their eyes, just something lacking. He needed a rhyme, and <laughs> that's what she came up with. That's actually great, Alan, because you can just hear, can't you, a sort of no-nonsense Liverpudlian mother <laughs> saying, well, what, he needs is a damn good whacking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but we can't forget Sam Kennison's comment about that. And he said something about that Charles Manson was so screwed up, you probably would have got the same message out of the monkeys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, last well, train yeah. to Clarksville, why did you hear what we'll he said? We'll kill everybody in Clarksville. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, especially you know. anti-Griselda. Especially anti-Griselda. Exactly. Um, we have to give a little nod out to Chris Thomas at this point because, you know, he did do the horn arrangement on Savoy Truffle and he played the harpsichord on Piggies. Yeah. And he did, he contributes a lot. And, you know, Piggies is one of those songs that, once again, only on the White Album. We keep coming back to that. It's like this is where they're really just stretching out much further than they are, normally would. You know, it's I don't think it's great. I don't think it's bad. It's just, it's sort of, I, I'd give it a C plus. Um, but it definitely gets a... A for uniqueness. And um, once again, no Lennon on this song, other than I believe he's the one that um, assembled the pig sounds from um, the archives. Um, but he has nothing, he had nothing to do with this song as well. Yeah, I, I like this one. I, I, I can see this one getting onto a different Beatles album if it hadn't gotten onto the White Album. But, um, you know, it's again a very clever lyric i mean he's he's absolutely brutal uh and probably the most brutal aspect of it is you know as they uh, eat the bacon you know you see the piggies being sort of cannibalistic on an earlier version it, it was pork chops um and yeah i think bacon <laughs> softened works the better yeah um but uh you know also the the arrangement the sound to the track again on, on all of these george tracks um, even where the lyrics may be problematic, which I don't think is the case with this one, the texture is just great. And that harpsichord is, uh, the harpsichord is really central to it. And, uh, you know, it, and it gives it, the harpsichord itself gives it a kind of, you know, antique, semi-baroque underpinning that kind of um, points up that what he is, he's talking about, you know, the established society, you know, the, the, the elder society that he's um, offering a, a critique of. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it works. I think it, it definitely works in the context of the White Album where there are so many different kinds of textures and, and song styles going. Um, but it is maybe my second favorite of his on this album after While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Wow. Mm. I can see that, though. Uh, it still resonates today, of course, you know, and <laughs> uh, I actually used that track 
to uh, create a video marking Trump's inauguration. I oh, thought it was pretty apropos. Oh, that. please. <laughs> that sound effects bit at the end makes me think of similar experiments that were going on about a year earlier with the Beach Boys. And at the end of uh, Help Me Out, guys, which it's it's during the smile sessions, there's one that kind of... Barnyard? It, it, well, it wasn't really Barnyard. Some other song kind of dissolves at the end into that where they start making these uh, the piggy noises and stuff. Oh. I always thought I should f- f- dig that track out. Isn't that one of the heroes and villains? Uh, Isn't my, that one yes, of the heroes I think it is heroes and vocal villains. Vocal it, it, it dissolves into that. It's one of the vocal yeah, outtakes. Yeah, so kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, if we if we do move on from from such a, as I say, the, the, the coin flip now, we've had George basically condemning most of the human race, and now he's going to offer the human race some salvation uh, through more I Ching inspiration and a song completed just before they went off to India, and that is the Inner Light. Let's do again, tall shall I dance? Yes, please. Take three. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Take five. It should be like this. Tag back here. We do another take and uh, straight away. The only thing that is coming from the slow piece into the fast piece, it's all got to come in very quickly and right on the, the beat. Take eight. This play is on the last second. Da, da, da. Not the first, not the first. Da, da, da. Not that. Not that. Just, 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 I should go. Just the second one, you join. Second one, okay. Da, da, da. Yes, yes. I followed. Because the singing goes da 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 and stops, and then you go da da da. This time, you have finished the melody. Yes. Ha, make it what? Ding, 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 ding,
Okay, guys, I have to confess, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite George Harrison tracks of any era is The Inner Light. I probably am alone with that thought. I just love this. I think it's beautiful. And uh, just curious what you all think. I'm not sure I would have put it on the White Album, being that it was the B-side of Lady Madonna. Same year, though. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I do love the song. I've come to love it. As with a lot of George's material, I've actually come to love it more and more over time. Uh, I, I think it's superb. As Paul pointed out, it's a beautiful melody. Or as Paul pointed out, in spite of the Indian instrumentals, backhanded compliment. But no, I, I love the song. I, I really like the lyrics as well. I think they're pretty deep. Well, I'm prepared to defend why I would put it in there. And, and as I say, it is does fall into the time period. Also, you remember on the on the John White album, I was my feeling is that John's message at that same recording period time across the universe was the optimism in a sense of going you know we're about to go to india and i have this optimistic feeling that uh i'm going to get spiritual enlightenment and peace jai guru day um to me this this song is really arriving without traveling and it's almost that same feeling of optimism right before they go to india so that's why i put it in can i throw a little cold water on this (laughs) I mean, certainly can. I I like the inner light as a song. I really do. Um, I do think it's beautiful. I do think the lyrics are great. But I also do think that it is a song that, apart from assembly, George Harrison had very little to do with. Um, The Indian backing track was something that was recorded during the Wonderwall sessions in India, and I kind of think it was a, a sort of traditional thing that that the ensemble was playing, and he recorded and brought back and made into the song. And the lyrics, deep as they are, are also not really his. They're really from the Tao Te Ching. Um, and he, he was sent... Uh, there was a a professor at Cambridge named Juan Mascaro, who uh, a friend had sent a copy of Within You, Without You. He was a professor of Sanskrit, so he was into this stuff. And he wrote George a note saying how much he liked Within You, Without You, and how he hoped it would, uh, you know, start a spiritual mission for millions of people who listened to it, and that he knew George had, you know, much more of this before him. Uh, And he sent George a book that he had edited with Indian writings, um, Indian and and I guess Chinese writings, because Tao Te Ching is uh, something else. And and there were examples in the book that he, he said, maybe you can set some of these to your music. Maybe that would help them get out there to people. And he specifically pointed out the inner light, um, which is almost verbatim George's lyric. George changed a little bit of it. Uh, the The original uh, text is written in the first person, and George uh, made it into second person. So it's you know you rather than I, uh, and and uh, so yeah, you know it's a great song, but it has very little to do with original creativity on George's uh, part. Alan, I can shoot that argument down with two songs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Song of, of somebody you really admire and would probably argue back. You could say, the, it, lyrically, you can say the exact same thing about Mr. Kite. 
uh, which is a tremendous song and we both like. And musically, as far as musical involvement, uh, a track that on the John Lennon White Album that you like so much, which is Revolution Number no. 9. There's really not a whole lot of playing going on. I know that theoretically there's something way underneath that's supposedly the runoff of Revolution. Well, but. okay. It, you know, I, I agree about Mr. Kite, and I think when we talked about it, I mean, no one... No one doubts that that was anything other than, you know, a found lyric, let's say. Uh, in the case of Revolution Number no. 9, I mean, wait a minute, there are a lot of sounds in there, and John and Yoko, and to some extent George, assembled them and put them in the order they're in. They, 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 he didn't just come up with an existing track of a bunch of Indian musicians playing and say, this is the backing track for this song. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this, I, I, I really do like the inner light. It's- Craig, I know that you, even as a kid, had issues with the EMI Bombay studio sound of the inner light, right? Yeah, that was my only comment, was it for some reason it didn't sound sonically as good as Beatles records. And um, even if we would have assembled it and put it on the White Album, I think it would have stood out like a sore thumb. It just doesn't have the sonics and the quality. We're now on our our journey to India, which to me is central to uh, George's writing on the on the White Album and really his his assertion going forward uh, in, within the Beatles. Um, when you uh, when you go to Rishikesh, you gotta go to Dehradun.
I really like this track. I, I think it's a, a beautiful track. Obviously, it wasn't fully fleshed out in, in the form that he recorded it in 69, wasn't it? While he was um, doing the Hare Krishna Mantra yeah. sessions at EMI, that he, he put that down on tape. But I, I think it's the nucleus of what could have been a really nice song. Well, it is kind of, he treats it in that recording kind of like a mantra because he's going, oh, Daradun, Daradun. The, the thing that I relate to in a sense is I remember flying. That's where you... That's the closest place you can fly into if you go to Rishikesh is, is the city of Dehradun. And, of course, they've got Dehradun over the airport as you walk off the plane onto the tarmac. So for the rest of the next hour, that's all I heard in my head over and over and over again. The, the few lyrics that he did kind of use in that recorded version that you just heard, uh, he talks about being on the road and the people along the road. Uh, there's a very specific drive you take from that airport, which is modern to uh, the ancient uh, religious city of, of Rishikesh, which is quite beautiful. And you, you see some really crazy things along the way. I think I told you guys last time about seeing signs that were like elephant crossing, <laughs> you know, the way you would see, beware of uh, children playing. You know, it's like, yeah, watch out for the elephants. They'll kind of go across the road every so often when you're driving up to Rishikesh. So uh, so to me, that's a journey song. That's a song about um, about where once again we're going we're here in India and that's he I can hear the excited George in a sense uh, just looking around for the first thing to grab a hold of in that exotic sound Dara Dune by the way just just for those of our friends uh, in India who are probably dying for me to say this right now uh, Dara in a sense means camp Dune is valley so uh, there, there's a religious connotation which is beyond me uh, but it was it is a very beautiful part of the country it's very green and hilly and gorgeous and seductive. It is really, for my money, uh, haven't been to the, to the beaches down south, but for me it was the most beautiful part of India. The song is very Donovan-ish in a, in a way. It's, um, it's got that light touch to it. And I mean, if, it, if Paul had come up with it, it might have made the White Album because Paul has a number of songs that are very light and breezy like this. Um, it's kind of not like Harrison at the time because you look at the other songs he's contributing and there's there's some um, that we haven't covered some of these other songs but there's some pretty heavy um, content there. Um, I would have liked to have seen it come to fruition, definitely. When the uh, surviving Beatles got together in the anthology sessions to do a little jam, he brought that song up and and the three and and did a version with Ringo and Paul so um, there is another sort of Beatles recording of Dara Dune. I wrote a number of songs did which you? I've never recorded to this day I wrote one called Dara Dune. Why don't you play it for us? Uh, I don't know if I know it. Dara Dara Dune. No. Dara Dara Dune. Dara Dune. Dara Dune. 
it's hard to know what to make of it as a song. I mean, it's 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 pretty. It's light. It it sounds like it would be fun. Um, I would hope that it didn't get overproduced if he had brought it into the White Album sessions and and it got used. Um, but uh, you know, the the 1969 recording is kind of fine. I could see that uh, that fitting into this segment. And actually, on mine, it would also go directly after the Inner Light. So why not? We are like-minded. Yeah, it's just interesting, isn't it, that George often mined some of his older compositions through the years. You know, he would dip into that bag of old songs and, and record them, or he'd even produce them for another artist. But with Dara Dooney, never returned well, to it. Well, you are the Sultan of Segway this week, Richard, because the next song is something that George returned to on that immortal album we all know and love as Gone Trapo. I believe it's the the Indian guru who is the pastiche the or or the the tribute to Maharishi that shows up in the monkey's movie head who says where there is choice there is misery and uh, that brings us also to our next song which is circles One, two, As I say, guys, where there's choice, there's misery. I had to choose some place to put this uh, particular track. This, to me, is the least of everything that we've got to play with today. Uh, undeveloped, just the nucleus of a song, right? Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. I don't. I'm even surprised it made it to be on the Isha demos. To be honest with you, I I I have it in my case because it's not really fully developed but you have that organ sound there. I have it segueing. here's that word again, I have it segueing into only a northern song. bad place for it. I, I think I put it here as, to me, as as I say, part of my little Indian subset in this idea that there there is some misery here, that George is now becoming aware, if there's any message in the song at all, of this just going around in a circle. That's what I always took away from it anyway, that uh, 
you know, maybe no forward progress. Maybe that's why, you know, part of that self-doubt, self-discovery that I, I'm sure he was going through, I think George took the meditation with him and kept it, and kept the spiritual things they were exposed to much more than the other three. Um, and so, I yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's 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 cert- certainly the most dirge-like and the least interesting. It If there's any emotion, it's boredom for me on this one. It's certainly my emotion. Anytime anybody's just sitting there with a Vox Continental organ or whatever that is and just singing along to it, you're not going to get too much excitement there. But I got to say that what little is there, the song is a bit ahead of its time. Um, being a songwriter, um, I listen to the chords and the melody, and, and for some reason it just reminds me of uh, like something that could be on Dark Side of the Moon. It's um, it's The chords are quite interesting for um, uh, what it was at the time. I mean, if you if you could strip away that organ sound, if you could, you could just take that song and redo it and take those chords and slow it down and um, have, uh, it, I swear, it, would, it would, would have been matched up and would have been perfect for Dark Side of the Moon. Wow. That's interesting. And I'm not saying that it's a great song, but I'm just saying the chord structure is, is unique for George. Hey, as far as that Vox Continental thing, I beg to differ. You've never heard me do 96 Tears. <laughs> ah, question mark and hysterians. Circles, I, I somehow that bypassed me this time when I when I was looking at the Esher demos. I just didn't really see it, but um, you know, it, it 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 again has that. It's somewhere between the uh, Indian stuff, the Indian philosophical stuff, and piggies in a way. I mean, there is some sort of critical, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a. A slightly jaundiced view of the world, you know? I mean, it, about friends come and friends go, that kind of thing, and uh, loss and gain. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe of the songs we're discussing, it may be the least of them. Um, but it's, you know, it's it, it, it's an okay song that I think, I think I agree that he could have finished it a bit more. And, and that could be why it took so long for him to get back to it. You know, he recorded a demo in 68 and then didn't get to record it until, what was it, 82? So, right. yeah, so that's kind of, um, you know, that's kind of the definition of a throwaway that you kind of like and and just wanted to, you know, get back to somehow. And it must have just seemed to him the time. Friends come and friends go As I go round and round In circles Love someone, change your mind Anxiety was a swine As you go round and round In circles He who knows does not speak
I wonder if Circles yeah. was resurrected, Alan, uh, because on the previous to Gone Trapo, uh, on the George Harrison album, he had resurrected so successfully Not Guilty as a as a uh, an acoustic interpretation of of a sort of at that point a legendary Beatles outtake that we hadn't really heard yet, but we knew the, the title of. Uh, so I yeah, wonder if because he right. got such a buzz out of that that maybe he figured, well, there's this other one hanging around from that period that maybe that'll, you know, maybe that will pique interest as well. Or a bit of the writer's block, you know, just having a little bit of writer's block and just saying, well, what do I have laying around? Right. Well, speaking of not guilty, that would be uh, track number nine, number nine, number nine on this list. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Getting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. Not guilty. And I'm not here for the rest. I'm not trying to steal your best. I'm not trying to be smart. I only want what I can get. I'm really sorry for your raging head, but like you heard me said, not guilty Not guilty No use handing me a writ While I'm trying to do my bit I don't expect to take your heart I only want what I can get I'm really sorry that you're underfed But like you heard me said Now guilty
lyrically, I'm not surprised it didn't end up on the White Album. I mean, it's one thing having a little jab at Obladi, but in this one, I mean, he kind of lays things bare. I mean, the tensions are there in the lyrics. I think he feels empowered by his experience to communicate it. Though I agree that the lyrics always sounded a bit, you know, first draftish to me. Walking on the street, making friend with every Sikh or whatever that couplet is. Yeah, but look at the way it starts. Not guilty, forgetting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. I mean, knowing what we know about what their issues with each other were at the time, it's... Uh, that's kind of pretty daring of him, you know, to think that he could get that on the White Album. You know, I'm not trying to upset the apple cart. <laughs> yeah, upsetting the apple cart. And there's also about, you know, on the road to Mandalay, I think he mostly felt a bit let down that Paul left early. Yeah, I think it's, it is once again, though, I find empowerment there. As you say, a brave thing to do and a braver thing to do to see... You know, maybe he thought they're really not paying attention, so I'll I'll take a swipe at them and see if they're they're so checked out that it'll get it on the album, and we'll all you know light up a joint and have a hoot. I wonder if it was a case though that he did all of these takes and he still wasn't happy with it, or if it was he did all those takes and John and Paul weren't happy with it. Got to be both. Got to be both. He didn't return to it for an awfully long time. Yeah, and when he did return to it, it had a lot less edge. I I much prefer the Beatles version. Oh, of version. course. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think I probably prefer the demo of I mean, circles. lyrically, you know, George throughout his career had some awkward moments lyrically, but I have to say, I think he also wrote some of the deepest lyrics of all four of them. Richard, you and I talked about this uh, song before, and I, it, it's funny because it's like, I don't think there's any other Beatles song that's in their catalog that was more realized and never saw the light of day. Um, right. than this one. And that's why I find it to be the really the one standout in their entire career. I mean, maybe that means a lot, but that's not even in this league. I mean, they spent so much time, and it's the production. Um, the, the, I mean, the bass playing is pretty great. for. I mean, McCartney, for somebody who may not have liked the song or, or may not have liked the lyrics, he sure put a lot of effort into it. Mm. So that might negate that that whole um, aspect of it. Um, I, it's For me, what really sets the song um, apart, why it wouldn't be on the album, is, is George's vocal performance. It feels like he's, it's, it, it feels to me like a, um, like a temporary track, like, a, like he's, like a place setting. Um, mm. he, I think he made a mistake of not double tracking it. Um, this, there's too much production going on and to have a voice be, he's got a lot of effects going on with his lead vocal. He's got like a, like a, like a double delay. He's got some kind of like it's maybe he's running it through an amp or a Vox tone bender or something like that, as well. But um, it doesn't work. Um, his vocal sounds like he's phoning it in. And um, when you look at the totality of the White Album, which we've been discussing, there's a lot of personality in the vocals on these songs, and this one just doesn't doesn't cut it he's not selling the song as a singer um, right. everything else works with it but that is the one fatal flaw of this song and it's the one thing that the Beatles are most triumphant of as far as just their ability they really can sell songs as singers and George isn't doing it on this song 
I, I agree with you. He doesn't sell the song. It, the song isn't compelling. If it ended up on the album, I think it would have been one of the more mediocre tracks for all of the effort put into it. It, it somehow just doesn't get over the line for me. I agree with right. both of you guys, uh, and especially Craig, with the idea of where does it fall down for me? Certainly not in the production, but definitely in the vocals. And uh, along with a, a better... I, like like a, it sounds like a guide vocal, and to me, what it, right. one of the things it yeah. could have used is if you this might be a stretch for you guys, but if you can imagine that sort of descending backing vocals of that, ooh, oh, I'm doing it so bad, I'm off key. Uh, in fixing a hole, for example, you could almost strip out some of the the wordless backing vocals and slip them in places into not guilty or something similar to that, just to thicken that vocal sound, because there. It, Lack of of being, uh, lack of emotion seems to be like he's almost an automaton in that one, and uh, it's such a pity. Or if McCartney would have just added like one harmony, like he did on Savoy Truffle, um, yeah. Like there's a few parts where McCartney actually comes in and does a few ad libs in Savoy Truffle and adds a unique energy to it. Um, all it, it might have just taken it over the top. But it's definitely yeah, it's it's kind of ironic that all of this effort went in, and yet the overall effect is as if none of their hearts were. Yeah, in. yeah, that's probably a good way to. Right. Yeah, I think the backing track is is really pretty good, and the vocal, like you're all saying, he he doesn't really sell it. Um, it could just be that, you know, they left it unfinished. That that would have been the last thing they did if they were going to do it. And uh, maybe he was talked out of that one on the basis of how much material they already had. Um, but, you know, quite clearly, it, it, it's I, I, I can't I can't imagine them having put this this song out, given how critical it is, you know, quite clearly of particularly Paul. I mean, that opening, not guilty of forgetting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. I mean, you know that he's written this in Rishikesh, and Paul went back to London to set up Apple the way he wanted Apple to be. I could see how George might regard that as stealing the day. Um, and if that's the case, then it would have been really clear to Paul, and I'm amazed that he even played on it, you know? Um I also like the Beatles track a lot more than his eventual solo version of it. I found that kind of let down. Not guilty of getting in your way while you're trying to steal the
for our purposes, it definitely belongs on this album. Um, it, it definitely tells us something about what George is thinking at the time. Um, and it's, it's a little bit prophetic, in fact. Um, no use handing me a writ. I don't know that none of them were handing each other writs at the time, right? Was anyone else handing them writs? Not that I know of. Yeah, and yet Paul eventually handed them a writ. <laughs> Once again. But it's interesting because you say uh, what you were just saying was really, uh, really interesting because, I mean, here Paul's playing on all these different versions. We don't know how many of those were actually realized in the studio, but that says a lot about him being a bandmate. Mm-hmm. And, and so he must have known about these lyrics early on, and, but yet he's, on all these takes I've heard um, from the bootlegs and the one that's on the anthology, I mean, he's putting a lot into yeah. this. And so that's, that, that, that bodes well to Paul as a bandmate sure. to actually go through that and, and to, to have a song that maybe could possibly be insulting and not walking away from it and actually putting a lot mm-hmm. into it. Well, he definitely would have heard the Isher version, you know, he, he, he was there, um, and it was demoed at Esher, so Paul would have known the lyrics from right. that. Yeah, that's a really good point, because I was going to say, you know, I wonder if he just overdubbed the vocal after Paul put down his bass track, but you're right, he would have heard them at Esher. In fact, I went back right. to the Esher tape just before we started, because I, I was wondering whether that handing you a writ line was actually in there that early, and, and it's in there, right, in the Esher tape. So it's kind of a... Astonishing in a way. A psychic moment. Nostradamus Harrison. Maybe the reason that there's no conviction in that studio vocal by George, maybe that's his little bit of self-doubt or guilt, or I just don't want to go through with this. But yeah, I'd never thought about that writ line. That's that's a fabulous pickup. So um, if they spent a lot of time on Not Guilty, they tragically, tragically overlooked our next track, which absolutely should have been on this album. Uh, in beetle form. And so track number 10 is Sour Milk Sea. Uh, maybe, uh, Richard, we should play the version where uh, there's several people have tried doing this home home enthusiasts. Don't try this at home, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, have have taken the Esher demo and, and laid it over uh, a slightly modified track of Jackie Lomax doing Sour Milk Sea. Uh, this is kind of maybe what it would have sounded like.
So that's basically a three-tall super group, right? We've got Paul on bass, we've got Ringo on drums, George and Eric Clapton on guitars, and Nicky Hopkins on keyboards. Just John's missing. I think it's a hell of a track. I love it. I, I just wish it... I wish they had the foresight at that time to say, you know what, George, uh, not guilty. We've gone through a million of them not quite working. Let's take this one and do it, because it just rips for me. I always like this song. It's it's a, the melody of the verse is amazing. It's really really a great melody. It's uh, the chorus is a little lacking. I think that if it would have been on the White Album, it would have competed with Savoy Truffle um, a bit because even though they're different types of songs, in some ways there's parallels between them as far as just the the way they sound and the way they're the way they're approached. I totally agree. I, I thought exactly the same thing. Yeah, and. Um, and the White Album is known for its diversity and not really every song standing out completely. So having Savoy Truffle and Sour Milk Sea on the Sammy album probably would have been a mistake. Yeah, because actually when I was doing my track listing, which we'll hear in a while, there was a point at which I had Sour Milk Sea following Savoy Truffle. And I thought, no, there's a similarity here. It doesn't work. Well, I think what I like about it to me is you know, according to George, this was, if you don't like your situation, get the hell out of it. And he's talking to himself here. Um, I really love it for that. I do love the energy. As I say, there's something about this, once again, such a an interesting omission that Lennon wasn't on this one. I, I would have right. thought Lennon could have got behind this. 
And of course, uh, when it was released, uh, it was one of the first four Apple singles. So he did not upset the Apple card. <laughs> True. Yeah, I, I love the Jackie Lomax version. Um, kind of like the Isher version in the sense of, you know, in the context of Isher versions, it's it's kind of a fun take. But um, but you don't really see necessarily the implications of what it can be until you hear the Jackie Lomax track. One, two, three, that that and Savoy Truffle might be too similar on the same album. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a different kind of song in the sense that Savoy Truffle is lighthearted and in-joke, uh, and Sour Milk Sea is really about, as, as Eric pointed out, trying to improve your situation if you don't like it. And it was also, I think, um, propaganda for Rishikesh and, and the Maharishi. Um, this is how you can change your situation by looking in and, uh, you know, changing it that way. I think that was what he had in mind. And, um, you know, all of these, all of these things, even the outtakes, even the ones that, you know, maybe don't strike us as necessarily up to the rest of his White Album stuff. They all show us another aspect of what George is thinking about at the time. And mm. given how little he had been writing up until that point, you know, um, although there were three tracks on Revolver, uh, you know, we, we never really got to hear that much about what he was thinking. Now we're getting an explosion of it. So, uh, you know, it's it's I, I I think on my version of the White Album, it would be something like something like what you played. It would be the Jackie Lomax version, but with a George Harrison vocal. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, basically, if you just replace the vocal, <laughs> pretty much got a Beatles track because John wasn't appearing on George's songs anyway. Right. And it would have been, a, I think, a terrific one. I, I know I agree with you guys about the similarity to Savoy Truffle. Uh, it's it just uh, to me, as I say, spiritually. If we're on, if this this little theme I was on, that part of what he discovered, George discovered, not only finding his voice as a songwriter, but strength in a sense. To okay, I now I have a way to get out of the the sour milk sea. Um, it leads into our eleventh song as well, uh, which is the other thing to me that George really discovered uh, in his sojourn to India, which is long, long, long. Uh, which you know the the you in long, long, long is on record as being God. And it's not hard to see when you know you look at the lyrics, it's been a long, long, long time. How could I have ever lost you when I loved you? Right, here we go. Here we go, lads. We're not really what we make out to be.
long, 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 it's been a long, long, long time. How could I ever have lost you? How could I ever misplace you? How I love you. It's heavy stuff. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely fabulous song. I've always loved Long, Long, Long. It's one of my favorite George tracks. And as Craig said before, superb drumming by Ringo. Uh, and, and, and you know, the cacophony of sound at the end, that sort of chanting a uh, fantastic song. It's very unique on the White Album. Uh, it just stands out on its own. And the chance, uh, the chance of the of the blue nun bottle rattling around on top of the Leslie speaker at yeah. the end, uh, it, you know, gets an honorable Correct. mention because it's once again a found object, an accident that he embraced and let stay in there, which I think is just texturally what makes the White Album for me is all of those crazy, bizarre textures that are still interesting fifty years later. But think of that really subtle opening to the song. It's so quiet and it's so laid back and the vocal blends in with that. And then as we move through the song, so it goes on an upward curve. It's you know, his hymnal. It's, it's, his, uh, it's his Hey Jude. It's his uh, Long and Winding Road in many ways. It's always been one of my favorite Beatles songs and especially George's song. Um, the way George's vocal is produced and uh, the effect on it, he... He sounds like he's floating above. It's almost like he's out of body on this song. And that's the way the whole song sounds to me. It's got that crazy flanging that we were talking about on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And Ringo's drums just kind of wake you up. It's it's like this would be a great song to just meditate to. Um, and, uh, you know, George, I believe he mentioned that it was inspired by... Um, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands on uh, Dylan's Blonde on Blonde album. There's quite a few similarities yeah. as far as the songwriting goes. Um, and uh, once again, no Lennon on this song. Um, and I, I just, when you listen to it through headphones, I just find it's, for not having very many instruments in it, it's just, everything is so well-placed. The very first line I noticed that there's, it's like the vocal, We, you know, we're, I keep coming back to the vocals because it didn't work on uh, Not Guilty, but on Long, 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 it does work. Um, the very first line, there's sort of a flubbed double track when he says, it's been a long, um, right there, and then it ducks out. And then, it, for the most part, it's just a single vocal with a lot of effects and delays on it. And um, the background vocals in that middle section it, it's a great song. It just really is. For me, it's always been kind of a sleeper track. You know, when the White Album came out, it, I might have considered it one of the least interesting, um, probably just because it was so quiet, you know. Um, I, I don't know what it was, but it, it just didn't grab me until, you know, years later as, with repeated listenings. You had that new amplifier that went to 11. <laughs> That's right. I liked it loud back then. Um, it it uh it it really actually does draw you in, you know. If if you were a little, I guess, more mature than I was when the White Album came out, um, it 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 pulls you into it. There, it's it's a beautiful melody. It's you know the lyrics really have some depth and uh, and. There are all those effects that Craig was talking about, which I didn't think very much about as, as a kid when it came out. But, um, you know, I think as it's grown on me over the years. And uh, again, in the context of the White Album and even in the George and Ringo White Album, it's a 
completely different kind of texture. I, I hadn't thought about the influence of Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, but now that Craig's mentioned it, I, I can hear that. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, you know, it, it, the nice thing about sleeper tracks is that you, you eventually come around to them and it's like discovering something new when you thought you already knew it, you know? So that's what Long, Long, Long is like for me. Uh, revisiting what we were talking about earlier with the Ringo's drumming on it, could, could you right. guys get in a bit deeper in terms of the choices that Ringo makes as a drummer on this track? With his toms, he's almost playing them like timpanis. It's, it's a symphonic sort, sort of approach. And um, I think the great thing about this song is, you know, we were talking about how softly it starts off. This song is a whisper. It starts off as a whisper, so anytime you want to get somebody's attention, you just whisper, and um, and it ends with a shout, and which is great. And that um, Ringo's drumming, he, it almost like it was taken from another song. It doesn't seem like it's a part of the song, but it fits so beautifully because of what we've heard in past things that Ringo's done, like Day in the Life. It's just. His per- Ringo's personality as a drummer and his brilliance really shining through on, on long, long, long. I think in in a way some of the drumming is actually pretty audacious given how quiet a song it is, you know. And Ringo comes in absolutely and really punctuates. This is this is the thing about Ringo's drumming generally uh, that yeah. I think a lot of people don't think about. Um, Ringo is a very compositional drummer. Uh, and it's kind of funny that it took him so long to write a song of his own, and yet, given someone else's song, what he adds to it is, it, it's almost like a line of counterpoint. You know, you listen to the lyrics, you listen to the melody, and then Ringo comes in, and he's showing you how to punctuate it, how to phrase it, and he's, I don't think, appreciated for that, but Long, Long, Long is a fantastic example of how he did that. Uh, to me, Long, Long, Long also ends the spiritual part, in, in some ways, of, of George's journey through India. And we return now with track 12 with something that was recorded earlier in 1967. John manages to show up on this one, which is nice. And uh, it to me, it, it goes where this song goes because uh, George has now been through his spiritual rebirth, and he realizes that uh, this pop stuff, it's only a northern song.
You're correct There's nobody there That's kind of interesting, Eric, because you're at the end of George's Indian spiritual journey with a track that he recorded before. Well, in other words, I, actually, I really end it with long, long, long. But the idea now we're back uh, in, in, in the West and uh, George perhaps looks at things a slightly different way. Only a Northern Song, of course, we both we all know that was recorded in 67, but it, it was part of the 1968 uh, Yellow Submarine Project. Uh, so that's why I felt this is where it should go. Or at least that's what it felt like to me. I will, uh, I, as I say, I feel the spiritual presence of George Harrison daily in my life, and uh, I think he agrees. So if you're listening to this song, you might think the chords are all going wrong, you know, but they're not. We just wrote it that way. There's something about that, it seems to me like precognition, like. I would. It would have made more sense for me if he had written that song after he'd come back and just, yeah, all right, I, I get it. We'll do this, and it's only a northern song. It's only for the movie. It's only this stuff. It's not deep. It doesn't mean so much. It doesn't bother me either. It doesn't really matter what chords I play or words I say or time of day. It's only a northern song. You know, it's there's something about it to me that fits there. But I open the floor. It certainly fits in with the general feeling of disillusionment by George that runs through a lot of these white album era tracks right yeah um, it, it's kind of the guilt has worn off the gingerbread for him as a Beatle and he, it's pretty clear in the lyrics of a lot of these numbers I've never been crazy on only a northern song for me that is more of a throwaway I understand why George Martin rejected it for Pepper um, but you know it's fine. It's okay. Nothing special for me. Well, it, one thing it's I think that's interesting about it is that it's probably the only Beatles song that I don't think it has any guitar in it. Um, I think George is playing the organ. You got John playing the piano and the glockenspiel, and McCartney's playing the bass and trumpet, and and everybody's kind of chiming in with the effects. So I think the song would have fared better if it would have had a guitar in it but I agree with Richard that it's it's you know kind of a throwaway for me it's it's interesting um but it's not quite there. it actually comes from that era doesn't it Craig where he was writing on keyboards as opposed to guitar right when I would used to listen to it I always thought the song sounded a bit empty 
it's like there's a lot of reverb and there's a lot of effects but it's it's almost like if you would have taken something from Sgt. Pepper's and you would have like muted the guitar tracks and what it would have sounded like it would have pushed it over the edge a lot more if it would have had some 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 heavier guitars or something like that in there. Yeah, I think the overload of psychedelic effects is my one reservation in putting it on this because it does stand out from from you know that's it was the one I thought about I was like should I or shouldn't I yeah why not because it gets to 14 tracks which you know <laughs> commercial release I I felt bad about a white album from George and Ringo having to be an EP that seemed to be uh, a continuation of the slight that sort of happened to George, especially during the band. I'm assuming that had only a Northern song been utilized for the White Album, that very possibly they would have re-recorded it and it would have had more of a White Album vibe to it. Which I would have been into. That would have been great. I, I like the lyrics. I think... Um, yeah. You know, remember with the McCartney album, we had the sort of zoological section, and then with this one, yes. we have the, the Indian <laughs> section. Um, on my version of the white Al- of George's White Album, I have only a Northern song going into "Not Guilty" because it's the discontent with the Beatles section. <laughs> oh, that works. Um, that definitely yeah. works. You know, it's uh, it's another one of those ones where we, you know, this the song isn't amazing, but it gives us a little bit of insight into George's kind of view of things, and uh, you know, saying it's only a Northern song, punning on the publishing company Northern Songs, uh, and as he points out in the book that he's he's also referring to Northern meaning Liverpudlian, north north of England. Um, it's uh, you know it's 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 not an amazing song, but it's okay. It was great in the context of Yellow Submarine. I'm not sure it would be great in the context of the White Album. I, I think you're right. It would have to have been re-recorded. She was a working girl north of England Way. <laughs> well, there's a and and working at what, Paul? Um, the but we'll leave that question unanswered for the moment. I the the reference the one of the reasons I put it where I did not just because it for me, comes after, in a sense, the, the spiritual awakening, um, is that line about, if you're listening late at night, which leads into our next song, Good Night. The F-sharp minor sounded out of tune. Three. Come on now. It's time you little toddlers were in bed. I'm having no more messing. You've been out to the park all day. You've had a lovely time. Now it's time for bed. Are we ready? Daddy will sing a song. Now it's time. It was me.
So here we have John's ballad written for Julian, given to Ringo, which is a very strange why. <laughs> Wait, I wrote this for my little boy, but I can't be bothered to sing it. Yeah, but who would sing? Would John really sing a song like Goodnight? It doesn't sound like a John song to me. No, I remember uh, a reviewer. I Actually, I think going back to Tyler and Carr, I think they thought McCartney wrote it. Yeah, one would have assumed that. Yeah, just because of the production and being classical, I mean, with the orchestration and everything, and coming off of She's Leaving Home, it would have sounded more McCartney-ish. It's interesting also because it leaves Ringo kind of vulnerable, doesn't it? Vocally, you can hear the fragility of the vocal. I mean, he's doing a ballad here, and uh, it's brave. I mean, it's a bold thing for him to do. I think it totally works. I agree. Uh, dream sweet dreams for me, you know, that I mean I think that section of it he handles beautifully and I think the character of his voice uh makes it. I, I know he's straining no, it's time you know that that uh, that that I can kind of get uncomfortable with, but but other bits of it and the, certainly the spoken word, who could do that better than Ringo? It's a, you know, it's a crooner, and um, it's the kind of thing that Ringo eventually did on Sentimental Journey, in a way. It, I, I could see it, I could see it having fit on that album. Um, and 
it's a good closer for the White Album in the sense that, I mean, thematically, now it's time to say goodnight. Um, I wonder what it would have been like if they tried to do a band arrangement of it. It would have been a completely yeah. different song, probably. Um, to Maybe me, it's more little... up-tempo. Yeah, to me, it's a little bit on the gooey side. Um a little bit on the gooey, especially side. that that's got like a theremin or something at the beginning going on. What the hell's go- you know? It's it's sort of like okay, we've dropped the acid, we've peaked, we're coming down, and now I'm hearing these sort of sireny singers sitting out on rocks in the ocean and lulling me to sleep with this weird lullaby with Ringo. It's a it's a very trippy song to me. Hmm, interesting point of view. <laughs> Craig, obviously, it's one of your favorite tracks. Well, you know, it, it it is. It's it's the for me. It's the perfect ending for the White Album. It, here they are doing all these crazy eclectic songs, and they're they're preaching. They're 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 doing some uh, country, acoustic, rock, psychedelic, blues, and all of a sudden you got Ringo singing "Good Night" with a. Um, I mean, I just I buy the whole thing hook, line, and sinker. I, I love what, it. What do you think of the George Martin arrangement? Um, I think it's, it's over the top, but it's over the top in the right way because it makes a statement with having those, um, those background vocals, which McCartney probably would have hated in any other situation. Mm. Like he, they, they talk about the way Phil Spector used it on Let It Be, um, the, those type of background vocals. Only on the White Album, once again, I keep saying that, it's, but it's really true. Only on the White Album could a song like this exist and Ringo sing. It's, it's brilliant in its boldness. Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree. It's syrupy for sure, but somehow it's not as stifling as the arrangement on Long and Winding Road. Right, exactly. And it's syrupy in context. I mean, if you're just, you're listening to the White Album, you remember, you've just... You just listened to Revolution Number Nine, and I mean, think about the songs that precede it. It's just it works, and, um, and it's easy to take these songs out of context and sort of and sort of edit them and and put our opinions on them. But when you think about how it flows with the White Album, the brilliance really shines through. Certainly on the real White Album, Craig, because as you say, you've just listened to Revolution Number Nine, which is a nightmare. And one of the key phrases in the next song, final song, is dream sweet dreams for me, dream sweet dreams for you. <laughs> it's a- after that? Right. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and by the same exactly. songwriter. How, how wonderful. And I know we've now gone off. We shouldn't really talk about Revolution Number no. 9. But, uh, but yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a decent closer for uh, George and Ringo's album, except much like the little kid who's just been sung to um, I just called downstairs and I want a glass of water or something before I go to bed. So I think the very final track for, for my arrangement of this would be the take one of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Uh, but I must point out, as you guys had just talked about the great arrangement that George Martin had done, string arrangement for Good Night, the released version that people are probably familiar with, with take one of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, is the one that George Martin went back and wrote a score for, which is pretty, and it's nice, and I like it as a standalone thing. Uh, I really, if you had gone to Abbey Road in 1983 during that reconstruction period where they had those shows, 
Uh, I know Richard did, and I did. I don't know, Alan and Craig, did you guys make the pilgrimage nope. that year? I didn't. No, we didn't. Um, didn't. There was nothing more powerful in that show, because uh, it was it yeah. was basically the closer. I mean, right after that, they gave you the acapella version of of Because, I think, and then that was pretty, you know, then they just kind of walked you out with Dream Number no. 9 by Lennon. But I remember, Richard, just as you said earlier in the show, you could hear a pin drop or audible gasping uh, at the end of that. Um, we're going to play a, a slightly different version of it, though, because I don't know if this is around much. Uh, the way it ended when Richard and I heard it in Abbey Road uh, didn't just sort of repeat a riff off into infinity. It had a definite ending, at which point George adds the little comedy flourish at the end on the guitar and then says... Let's hear that back, which to me brings us back to the beginning of the album. You have to play the start all over again. So so that would be the uh, play out for me, guys. Overall, how do you think this holds up as an album? Because obviously I'm sure George Martin would have said it should have been a much stronger EP. And a lot of people may agree with that in this case. Do you think that this holds up as an album? Not really. Um, there's... It, there's a lot of preaching going on, and uh, which is, it's 1968, so... It's also George, right? I mean, that was one of the things that we would get yeah. again in the sort of early to mid-70s, a lot of the preaching and almost hectoring people. Yeah, I mean, this this one doesn't really kind, kind of hold up nearly as much as the McCartney and the Lennon. There's not as much substance. Right. Um, so, and we're also doing a number of hypotheticals here. Um so it, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I don't really think it holds up quite as well. Alan? Um, I don't either, uh, although I think it can be made to. <laughs> uh, I've I've played my sequence a couple of times, and I, I enjoyed it, but it, that probably is just because I know the tracks and enjoy the tracks, and, you know, mm. that's that. Um, I think my first choice would be to put it out as a George EP and a Ringo single. Um, and not include the extra stuff, but once you are bringing in the extra stuff, you, you 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 almost have to think of it in terms of an album. So, I did a sequence for that too, which is okay. Begins with while my guitar gently weeps, um, goes into piggies, then don't pass me by, then long long long, uh, Savoy truffle. I mean, we've got some uh, maybe jarring. Uh, textures here but uh, then circles didn't really know where to put that then into only a northern song and not guilty the I'm mad at Paul section uh, <laughs> then the inner light and Dara Dune sour milk sea as I say the Jackie Lomax version but with a George Harrison vocal so doesn't actually exist so far as we know but it may that may right. be in the studio somewhere. Um, then it's all too much, followed by good night. Yeah, actually, my um, listing, my, my sequence isn't that much different to yours. I'd start off with the acoustic version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, so at least the first part of it, and then interject John's A up and go straight into the electric version. Then I'd follow that with Piggies. If I was going to include Art of Dying, it would be here. But as I say, you know, I don't know uh, really the form of that song. So I'm going to leave that out. So I'd go from Piggies to Long, Long, Long. 
Then Don't Pass Me By, Savoy Truffle, Not Guilty, Deradoon, Sour Milk Sea, then what I mentioned earlier, Circles, segueing into Only a Northern Song. And when I say segueing, I mean just an abbreviated version of Circles, going into Only a Northern Song. It's All Too Much, and then ending with Good Night. Mm-hmm. Did you have a sequence, Craig? I did not. Sorry, guys. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an admission. <laughs> wow. At least I'm yeah, honest. Well, it, um, it reminds me of that release that came out on 12 Inch years ago called The Wit and Wisdom of Ronald Reagan, and it was a, a cover with a 12 Inch album in it, and it was just blank grooves on both sides for 25 or 30 minutes on the side. Something like, or 15 minutes, maybe it was. But uh, yeah, so he's got, I got nothing. That's okay. Um, I think we had uh, plenty. Well, obviously, I, I, I think uh, there's a lot worse albums than, uh, than a George and Ringo White album. A lot worse albums out there. Um, a, a lot of catalog, uh, catalogs by a lot of very famous and equally, almost equally successful people. I, I can dismiss, you know, huge, huge amounts of their albums. I'd rather have this than, uh, than a, at least a half dozen Rolling Stone albums I can think of. So, uh, you know, it just... Uh, I, I mean, I suppose, though, in the context of Beatles saying there are a lot worse albums out there, normally we're saying there aren't there aren't any or many better albums out there. So that in itself says something, doesn't well, it? Well, I, mean, I think of the three potential albums that we've showcased in our White Album tribute, this is certainly the weakest. Oh, God, yeah, by a long way. So yeah. you could say that. But uh, So... Overall, guys, what do you think then? Stick with the White Album as is, or do you think this is an interesting concept to have the three separate albums? Hmm. Can we have both? You can have whatever you want. You can have both. Craig, what do you think? <laughs> oh, you can't take my original White Album away from me. <laughs> I'm not going to try to. That's, that's, one of my desert, that's one of my Desert Island classics. I would take the, uh, okay, if, if I can pick, I'll take the White Album, then I'll take... I'll take the Lennon and I'll take the McCartney. Um, I'll probably leave the George Harrison <laughs> Ringo one at home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I had to take two, it would be the White Album and the, the Lennon White Album. Surprise, but that's true. That's what kind of got me going on this. Was first of all isolating the John tracks and and thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then, then the next thought was, well, McCartney runs him a close second here as well. Absolutely, Alan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree, but I, I would take the White Album as it is. Um, and if we're talking about going to a desert island um, and I could only take one of the ones we put together, it would probably be the Harrison Star one because it has more unreleased stuff than the Lennon and McCartney ones. Um, <laughs> Interesting. And the McCartney wow. one, we, we already have those tracks on the whole White Album, see? Um <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to waste uh -huh. too much uh... more bang for the buck hmm? yeah i agree that's so a, that's a great take on that alan i i think going through this process uh, one thing that that uh it underscored for me is i think at the beginning of the show i was saying the cool thing about being a longtime beetle fan is you get to shift around your favorite beetle is this one your favorite beetle is that one when i take the whole of their careers the total sum of everything they've put out it surprises me that my now favorite Beatle is George. I think he did the best, most even work overall. He certainly had his quality problems on certain records. But, but boy, did he bounce back with the Wilburys Project and Cloud Nine 
and uh, those beautiful concerts in uh, Japan were wonderful. And uh, uh, I know it's a it's harder for the guys that are that live longer and have to you know put out more stuff, and so the quality can go up or down. But I think uh, I would argue that the one that stayed the most relevant for the longest was unquestionably to me, George Harrison. Interesting. And he was also the probably the most stand-up, real, honest Beatle out of all, all four in, in looking at it in retrospect. So we kind of can't forget that part, that aspect. It, it sort of clouds our view a little bit, but in a good way. Well, guys, it's been a real pleasure. I love this. It's been a great exercise, I think, actually, going through these three shows. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, sort of revealed a lot of stuff, made me think of a lot of things I never really thought about before. Well, that's what we're here for. I look at you all See the lover that's sleeping While my guitar gently weeps I look at the floor and I see it needs sweeping still my guitar gently weeps I don't know why nobody told you How to unfold your love I don't know how Someone controlled you They bought and sold you I look at the world And I notice it's turning While my guitar gently weeps With every mistake We must surely be learning Still my guitar gently weeps I don't know how You were diverted You were perverted too I don't know how You were inverted No one elated you I looked from the wings At the play you are staging While my guitar gently weeps As I'm sitting here Doing nothing but aging Still my guitar gently weeps
Let's hear that back. The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. everybody. I hope good night replaces Bing Crosby's White Christmas, so please buy it and make us sell more than Bing.